Welcome to Profiles in Eccentricity, a show about weirdos, with your hosts, John Fahey and Darren Peter. folks, my name is John Fahey. You are listening to Profiles in Eccentricity, a show about weirdos. I am joined by the most gorgeous co-host one could have, a man named... Aaron Pita, right? Yeah. You're talking about me? That's your name. Yeah. That's your name, you I'm, sweet boy. I am pretty, but I am not smart. You're not. You're not. That's why I have to teach you things on this program. I, I don't know where else I would learn such fascinating things. I have, uh, I have a bit of a doozy. Oh. Uh, today. Are you okay? No, I'm not okay, but this guy is really not okay that we're going to talk about. Yay! <laughs> I'm going to tell you about a man named Doc Dart. Doc Dart. Sounds like a superhero villain character. It does. Uh, his, his, that's his real name, uh, his given name. He was named after his grandfather, who was named after like the actual local doctor. <laughs> <laughs> that they liked, yeah. and so they named uh, they named this kid Doc, and then uh, his grandson was named after him. And Doc Dart was born in 1953. He'd be 64 now, and uh, he was uh, in Lansing, Michigan. Mm-hmm. And he was born into the family that created Dart National Bank. Okay. Okay. Massive national bank, and that started by the great grandfather. The great grandfather's brother started the styrofoam dart you know when you oh, get a coffee yeah, cup no way and it says dart underneath yeah, it yeah that started by this guy's family all right so this guy's coming from a pedigree this guy is coming from like yeah i mean an astonishing amount of money and very much in line to take over uh the bank through just sheer nepotism you know so he's born in uh 53 around 1964 is like when he first hears the Beatles, right? And this is like, music is like his first kind of, you know, big passion. And you gotta, you gotta remember like, a lot of early 60s, mid 60s stuff, there, it was so political, it was so tied to the anti-war movement. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So he's he's getting politicized through art. He's getting into art and he's getting into politics at the same time. And, um, you know, he's grown up, you know, like something of an enchanted life, but the, he does become disillusioned that all of these things that we're told as Americans that are true and virtuous are not really true. Mm -hmm. That the freedom enshrined is often corrupted and most of the times just an outright lie. Okay. You know? Yeah. So, I mean, he's, you know, he's getting into, um, he's getting, you know, he's into Jimi Hendrix and stuff after that. Uh, He's playing in bands. He plays in a band called uh, Kilgore Trout. Okay. Right. And uh, next thing you know, punk comes around, the Sex Pistols. And then he feels like it's very political and it kind of leans back to that early 60s stuff because he felt like all of the 70s shit got very me-centric and, you know, just drug-addled. And he hates that shit. He's like, mm-hmm. he hates, you know, the, like, the pot-smoking Buddhist. Like, he's equally as disdainful of leftists mm-hmm. in his mind as he is the hawks of the right and the Republicans, etc. Mm-hmm. So he um, gets really into punk. He's really into Devo, especially. Great. And then what America kind of did with punk, uh, one of the things besides, you know, the various offshoots like Devo and Talking Heads and stuff like that was hardcore punk, where mm-hmm. it became very much more intense and aggressive 
And, you know, at this time, he's been coming up in the bank as, you know, a teenager. And, you know, he was he was he was very politicized. But, you know, he went to Michigan State University and got a degree in anthropology. And uh, two years after that, he got married. And a year after that, he has his first child. So he's in his mid 20s now. This is more like actually when the when he starts when he starts his first punk band he's 28 and wow. has a family. Wow. Okay. But before this, uh, his, his in 1976 he's you know like he's like a weirdo hippie guy that's sailing through the ranks because you know the whole point is to give him the dark the rain, national yeah. bank. Yeah. And he's just depressed and a weirdo and nonconformist. He's got a gross beard and long hair. You know. And they're like, get the fuck out. Where you've had enough of you. He just gets disowned by the family. And he ends up going, he ends up trying to get unemployment benefits and they deny him his own family. And he has to sue his dad, right? Just to get unemployment. And uh, so, you know, at this point, so he's now exploding into the whole like the punk thing and stuff like that. And he's angry. I mean, he's just angry mostly politically. And he starts this band with his cousin and a couple of other guys he knows called the Crucifix. Okay, and and uh, is it F U X X? No. How do they spell the crucifix? Yeah, it's cruci. Uh huh. F U C K S. Oh wow! So they're playing in Lansing, Michigan, and uh, he would he would I mean just be a maniac. He would cut himself up with with razors on stage, broken glass. He would call the cops on his own shows just to create fucking mayhem. Yes, he's uh just like a lunatic and he he sings in a shrill insane way the songs are like cops as fertilizer <laughs> john hinckley was right i mean just extremely extremely political and the thing is you got to you got to understand is there's there's wildly political hardcore punk bands and there's super apolitical punk bands but they all agree on one thing fuck the cops right they all hate the police yeah so he starts getting in run-ins with the cops and, you know, like just saying things while his friend's being arrested and realizing he doesn't have the right to say those things, which I think was really shocking coming from an extreme white privilege background. Right, right. So then he's so, like, mortified by this lie that he can't stop waging the war in his mind that these people are so fucking wrong and everything is so false and that his family are the kind of people that uphold it. Right, right. So, like, one of the times he goes to jail, he has a party at his house. It's called an Ozzy party, where they're going to play every record that Ozzy Osbourne ever appeared on, right? And a local band wants to play, and he thinks it's going to be fine, and the cops come. But the cops come en masse and swarm this whole fucking thing. And, and he did not call them. No. And they also, but he's known now to them. And mm-hmm. they're like, they kind of have it out for you, because it's Lansing. It's still a small enough town mm-hmm. that you can know who the troublemakers are. And the cops come and he does this thing where they, you know, they're raiding the whole thing. And he's, he just goes out the back door of his own house and grabs a beer and heads to the lawn and starts watching as if he has nothing to do with it. And the cops uh, take him down and like, they break one of his fingers, like in front of people. Oh my God. Yeah. Like, cause he's talking shit. He can't, this guy cannot stop talking shit. Like he's a lunatic. Yeah. Well, there's probably some self-loathing there knowing that he kind of comes from. Right. The establishment. Exactly. Exactly. And then, uh, you know, he's rebelling just so hard from it, but it's really like, it's really like a matter of, it's really unfair and really wrong. That's like the, the most resonating thing in his mind that makes him so compelled to fight against these things. And he gets seen by one of the biggest punk bands of the day. They end up playing a show with them, the Dead Kennedys. And they're playing for somewhat more of the meathead hardcore audience. 
And the singer of the Dead Kennedys, Jello Biafra, is watching him and he's saying, he's like, the bottles are just raining down at this guy. He can't stop. He knows exactly how to needle these meathead idiots. Yeah. And he, he keeps getting, they're, they're, they want to kill him. And he's like, he somehow keeps falling into the crowd because he would dive from, like, from gigantic heights right on these people. And like, just no regard for his own safety at all. And he would still somehow come out unscathed. Like they wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to get away from beating the shit out of them. And he would just, he would keep going and going and going. And, and, and Jello, of course, you know, Dead Kennedys were a super political punk band. And they were like, we got to sign these guys. So in 1984, they put out the LP and, you know, they just are like one of the most legendary incendiary bands ever in uh, hardcore punk. You know, they, they, he, he, and it was all because of him. It was they were so so combative, and he had so little fear, probably because he came from one of these things. But like when he went to jail for the party, the Ozzy party, he, like he loses the case because he's like this. He's suing the police department, and he recognizes the the judge as one of his dad's friends. <sighs> you know, so um, a couple of years later, the band is is breaking up, and he's such a mess. You got to remember the whole time he's doing this, he's married with children. And he's a 40-year-old man. Well, no, no, no. Now he'd be like 30 to 32, let's say. Okay. And so the wife is like, I'm going to take the kids and leave. And she, you know, follows through on the threat. And, you know, he's, I mean, he's doing other stuff at this time where he, he has a thing called the, the Lansing Police State Journal, which is filled with photographs of dead cops, like, celebrating their death. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's being as inflammatory as you could possibly be. Well, he's being he's being punk all the time. He's all the time punk. It's, it is, yeah. It's never it's, not punk. Right, exactly. And then kind of goes into a, a, a depression. And on the other side of it, you know, now he's got no band, and he's just got a house, and it's kind of uh, it's like at a T junction, and it's at the top of the T, right? So all three of these streets are great viewpoints for his house, and he just was in this house alone. And he's, you know, he's really fucking depressed. He's been depressed, like, since he got fired from the bank, you know, when he was just schlubbing around, you know, uh, being gross. And he comes out on the other side of it, and he goes into the 90s, and he's just like, he's a huge baseball fan. And he starts a little baseball card store, right? And, yeah, I mean, what? yeah, the last thing you think he would yeah. do. But he starts this little baseball card store, and he's, you know, you got to remember now, it's Clinton time. And the rage of Reagan has subsided a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, things are not good, but they're a little bit better. Right. Which is something I understand very well. You know, it's like the Obama years. Yeah. You have the rage of Bush. Yeah. And then you're like, things aren't too good, but they're better. Right. During the Obama years. Mm -hmm. And then you get to Trump and all that rage is back. Mm -hmm. And you're a whole new fucking person. Yeah. So essentially, this is what happens to Doc Dart, but during those those happy years, the Clinton years, he has his little baseball card store, and he's still politically minded, and he's looking at Lansing, his town, his hometown, and he sees that Lansing is fifth in the nation for rape, and there's a city council election going on, and he decides to run for city council, and he thinks that Lansing is going to be like, fuck you, like, we don't... And nothing comes up about it. Now he's just known as the base, like the, the, the memory of people is actually very short. And they're just see him as the baseball card guy now. You know, now he's not a, the uh, self mutilating. Yeah, not the guy anarchist. cutting himself up and calling the cops so he can fight them. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? This uh, guy's like, it just, I think of a weird, like even more demented 
psychopathic Bruce Wayne. Right, yeah. I come from this rich family with a name, and I leave everything uh, behind because I learned the world is full of shit. Right, and, and I, mo- I, just, I moonlight as a lunatic. Yeah, beating people <laughs> up in the dark. Right, right. So he's kind of living like an agoraphobe otherwise, though. Mm-hmm. You know, he's pretty low-key. Uh, and he's he's got the back of his land, even though he's at this big T-junction, the back of his land at this house is uh, very much wilderness. I mean, you, you get deer that just would come right up and... And he kind of, you know, the family's away. He can see his kids and all that. But he has a lot of time where he's just, like, alone and with these animals. And that's, like, his, like, relationships because, like, people don't really work out for this guy. Hmm. You know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, or he doesn't work out for them yeah. is a more accurate way to say it. And um, anyway, uh, coming back, I'm just giving more background. While he's, he decides to run for office for city council, and his uncle comes to him from the, from the bank and he uh, stops by because word travels, like word of mouth travels back to the family that has disowned him. And the uncle stops by for a frank chat to say uh, it would be too embarrassing for the family if he were to run for public office. And he's hurt by this. And he, uh, his way of coming back to it is like, maybe uh, I should just run for mayor instead. <laughs> so he runs for mayor and he pledges as part of his campaign to donate the mayor is uh has an annual salary in Lansing at this time of $67,000 and he pledges to give $30,000 of his own money per year to build a rape crisis center in Lansing and uh he goes to the primary he gets 5% and he's just laughed off as like a jerk off but now keep in mind it's really funny during this campaign they did not bring up his past they did not use that against him while he was running but uh, the incumbent mayor and his opponent, you know, the the Republican and Democrat, they are uh, in a dead heat. And Doc Dart calls calls both of their campaigns, and he says to them, "You know, 568 people in this city voted for me, and you guys are deadlocked. If you will build my rape crisis center, I will endorse either one of you." Mm-hmm. And they both shrug him off like he's a jerk off. Then those two candidates go on public radio for a debate, and who calls in but Doc Dart oh, yeah. with the same offer. Ugh. And they again shrug him off on the air. Two hours later- Yeah, bad move. Two hours later, the mayor comes walking into the baseball card store and says, let's do it. And Doc Dart endorses him, and the mayor wins re-election by 444 votes. Wow. Yeah. And the Rape Crisis Center gets built, and Doc Dart serves on the board. No way. Yeah. So then, like, we're back to, at this time, he's, he's, starting, he's starting to realize that, you know, he is a self-destructive person. And he's getting into what could be called some kind of spirituality. But keep in mind, this is from a guy who thinks Buddhists are jerk-offs. Right. You know what I mean? He hates all that kind of stuff. And he, uh, he's quit drinking, you know, because a lot of the, the, the mania was, was, you know, heavily alcohol-involved. And he is sitting at home when the attacks of 9-11 happen. And before an hour goes by, he gets uh, like a bunch of tar paper and uh, makes a sign outside of his home facing this T-junction that says, September 11th, justice is served. Oh, my Lord. (laughs) I mean, the bodies are not cold. Yeah. Definitely, yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, those fires burned for a while. Yeah, the bodies are not nearly cold, or maybe even dead. <laughs> <laughs> they haven't hit the ground, <laughs> right? And this guy's saying justice is served because 
I mean, really so anti-establishment in American form. But also, the thing is, is that he's he's viewing the world through the punk prism of you know, you know about the atrocities the United States government has killed. If you mm-hmm. are into this kind of subculture, mm-hmm. you know about what happened in El Salvador and our role in it, mm-hmm. and it's never talked about. Mm-hmm. And we keep droning on about freedom mm-hmm. and democracy, and we can't stop supporting the Dicta- most yeah. torturous. Yeah brutal mass slaughter regimes that further our own interests. So he again feels obliged as a person of privilege to speak up and say, yeah, sometimes the third world hits back. Right. And it's not popular. <laughs> I mean, this is Lansing, Michigan. On September, tw- on September 11th, yeah. people aren't ready to hear that? Yeah, and within a couple of hours, a policeman knocks on his door, and <sighs> it's the cops, so you know they have a storied right. history, mm-hmm. and... Basically, the cop is is saying to him, you know, I can't deny you the right to say this, but I can't police just your house. Like, these people are infuriated. And so he starts just adding more signs. And do you mind if I read you some of the signs? I would love it if you would read me some of the signs. This is one. Democracy, a myth. Freedom, a superstition. Human life is not sacred until all life is sacred to humans. U.S. troops terrorize as cowards from the skies. They should be in body bags. And this is this is uh, post his spiritual awakening. <laughs> this is the beginning. Ah, and yeah, but yeah, I mean, he just can't. You know, I feel like because I come from uh, you know a place where I, you know I would listen to Noam Chomsky. I would yeah. know about you know mm-hmm. Iran Contra and the terrible things the U.S. government's done and right. and all that stuff. But small town Main Street Lansing, Michigan, does not have a fucking clue about that stuff. Right, right. And if they were properly educated, they might be like, okay, yeah, fucking fine. But they're not, and they're angry because this is the most patriotic the country's been since fucking Pearl Harbor. Yeah, you know. And he's just saying no, fuck you. Like, we're wrong. <laughs> and it's just at the absolute moment that you can't say it. Right, he was and just he waiting for it. And he keeps saying it. Well, you need those guys. Because I think, you know, I didn't get into that type of stuff, the Chomsky and the right. kind of true history of the United States type right. of stuff. Right, United until, States imperialism. Until after 9-11, and probably because 9-11. That's the weird thing about it. Oh, right, well, you go searching for answers. Yeah. Because how could you do this? Yeah. Why would you ever do it to us? We're the nicest of all. Yeah. And then you look and you see all the atrocities. Right. Right. I mean, yeah. This more is, signs. More signs. Uh, I got, I got uh, two more. This is um, Bush. White trash imbecile maggot corporate slut. <laughs> <laughs> but this is my favorite. Patriotism reflects a secret wish to be sodomized. <laughs> <laughs> These punk guys, man, they have such a great way of just like inflaming and <laughs> picking off scabs and make like putting salt in the wound while right. it's still fresh. Like you have this I feel like you you told me a story about some guy at a punk show yelling at some skinheads. Is that a story? Yes, yes. <laughs> Is yes. that anything you can tell? Right. Well, that was that was uh from uh a, a very the direct polar opposite of the spectrum where you're trying to uh, inflame people in a, in a distinctly anti-PC way um, but just saying, you know, uh, you know, a lot of homophobic slurs and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But it's almost – it was uh, the singer of the band was from a band called Anal Cunt from Massachusetts. Crucifox, Anal Cunt. All right. But, Following but Anal Cunt were, were, uh, were dis- distinctly looking – because things were so political at that time, 
uh, that they were like, let's go the other way, right? Mm-hmm. So even in Michigan at this time when the Crucifix were around, you had the Meat Men. And the Meat Men were just talking about like being like metalheads fucking chicks. But it was just to piss off punks. Right. So there was a lot of these bands that thought the way they could be the most punk was to piss off other punks. And Anal Cunt was like that. And so they would say a lot of inflammatory things, which then got them like a racist audience, which they did. They wanted to piss them off, too. Right. So at one of these Anal Cunt shows, uh, in, this is in the 90s, an entirely different time. This is a total sidebar. But Anal Cunt were playing a show. And uh, they had a heavy guy with them because everybody wanted to kick the shit out of them. So they brought one of their meathead, big, tough guy friends to protect them. And in the show, there's a bunch of uh, – it's it's a college, by the way. It's like – so it's just a bunch of people that are like, let's see what this crazy shit is about. And then there's a couple of Nazi skinheads in the back. And the singer from Anal Con points to the Nazi skinheads from the stage and says, uh, get up here, you fucking wiggers. (laughs) Which of course incenses the yeah. the Nazi skinheads in, it's the perfect in thing a thousand years would never expect to be called wiggers. <laughs> so and it hurts so, so bad. they go and they go completely mental, and then this big heavy they've got with them just Flash. comes to the front of the stage and flashes a piece. He's got a gun tucked in his belt, and they're like, "Ah, shit, <laughs> he got us." But I mean, that's a lot of the thing too. Is that a lot of a lot of people that are drawn to punk are amused mm-hmm. by people being irate and challenging people, and how. How much people are not willing to be challenged, especially in America, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? You know, you got a way of thinking and do not challenge yeah. that or it's my pride, whereas I think like in Europe, people are much like more like, no, please Let's challenge have a discuss. Let's discuss. Well, yeah, I'm open to thinking of other things, so. Right, and, and yeah, in this country, there are snowflakes on the left and right. Right, absolutely. Yeah, you can't you can't shake them mm-hmm. because they can't handle it. Right. Otherwise, they feel like everything comes crumbling down. Right. So, I mean, yeah, that was one of the reasons Jello Biafra, who was, you know, in a very inflammatory band, the Dead Kennedys himself, was like, he's like, I just saw this guy on stage and he's taunting these meatheads and they can't get him. And I was just like, I have to put this guy on my record label. And when the this is when the band was still around, of course. And the there was a show where now they have a record out. You're like 1986. And the Dead Kennedys come back again. And to Doc Dart's immense disappointment, the audience loves the Crucifix. And so he just goes on on the mic talking about what a sad, pathetic disappointment hardcore punk is. And the bottles start raining uh, again. And, and, and he, he is smiling it, ear to ear. What a fucking sociopath. He couldn't, just couldn't, couldn't be happier. You know, uh, the this the crashing of bottles and t- tomatoes and rotten lettuce is is his yeah adulation that he so yeah seeks. well it's something like we're getting somewhere and there's a lot of a lot of his personality is like I want to see more social experimentation yeah you know everything's so homogenized people are so not willing to be challenged let's just keep doing this you know right. so that's a that's a big part of his thing and so he puts out he puts out all these signs and this I'm Aaron this period is like. From September 11th to October, and keep in mind, the patriotic fervor only increases, mm-hmm. and it just gets worse and worse and worse, and at a certain point, the cops come, and they kind of bully their way in his door, no warrant. Well, of, of course, that was totally acceptable at post 9 And they're, I mean, they're like, uh, we think you're a danger to the community, and I mean, he's talking about violence. He's talking about abortion now. I'm pro-abortion. Like, I hope I hope all these children die because of the sins of this country. Like, I mean, very explicit, like, fuck your Christian bullshit. Kids should die. <laughs> fuck the troops. Everything you can't say in America. He's saying all of those things. 
So there is hints of violence in it. And also there's some other things like where he's saying, like, I'm the Messiah. And you're like, huh? Right? Oh, no. So he's throwing <laughs> some of that shit in there, too. And... Uh, which maybe like is just another one of his inflam of inflammatory right. statements, right? right? Like if I say this, then they'll really hate me. Exactly, exactly. So uh, he's now got it to be so bad. The uh, the cops that come take him to the station to get him committed. Uh, that's the plan, mm. you know. And it is a plan. It's a good one. And so he's like, he's arrested and he's in a cell and he's going to meet this doctor and he's like, I just have to do all these breathing exercises to calm myself down because they do know how to draw his ire. I mean, these are the cops. These are like and public enemy number one as, as far as he's concerned. Yeah. And he passes the test. You know, he's they're like, yeah, he's not insane. So they just give him a taxi home. But I mean, the bottles are the rocks are coming through the window. Halloween. I mean, oh, God. the people are just uh, going at it. Uh, he must have loved it. I mean, well, I mean, to a, to so I think when it became like I open my door and I start getting shot with paintball guns, <laughs> and which happened, you know, like that shit was happening. It was like, okay, yeah, this is getting a bit over, and you can't call. We're gonna call the cops. You already know that they're not, they're not down. So he still talks to them though. He's still saying you should be doing this. If mm-hmm. if the law was the way the law is supposed to be, I would be able to say whatever I want and I would be immune to violence. But it's false, right? And so what, so the, so the signs I have on my lawn are true, right? Yeah, and is the I mean is are we doing this Constitution thing or not? Do yeah. I have the right to free speech or not? Because you guys are fucking mobbing me, the cops and the mm-hmm. people, mm-hmm. and there's multiple, 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 multiple death threats coming in the answering machine. People just stopping by to say, "Hey, something's gonna happen. Right. Like we're gonna do something." All the while he's serving on the board of this rape crisis center. Well, yeah, that, I mean, that's that, that's that, that's more 90s time, okay, right? Okay. So, okay. Uh, but this is, you know, he's just uh, more at home now just enjoying inflaming public opinion mm-hmm. and, you know, feeding deer out his backyard. They come right up and they feed him. And that's another thing I got to tell you is that he's so involved with the animals on the property. He, I mean, this guy that interviews him, a lot of this, this article uh, that I, I drew from was from a guy named Sam McFeeders who was the singer of a punk band himself called Born Against. And he interviews him and Doc Dart says to him, he's like, I could tell you this, you know, like the deaths and the births and the, the new arrivals and the disappearances of the raccoons. He's like, it'd, it'd be five, ten days for me to tell you that whole saga <laughs> of the raccoons on my property. Wow. Yeah. So he's super involved in that world. But then it's like, you know, his kids come by and he's like, fuck, I got to do something here because, I mean, now my family is like getting... Mm-hmm. affected by this and I already pushed them away as far as I could and he's he starts in 2004 by stopping swearing he's not going to curse anymore start all right so this is this is like one of the things 2006 you know he's still he's still doing the signs because it's still bush things are worse yeah. than ever you know yeah. and uh one of his neighbors shoots one of his deer as a warning oh, to him bad move yeah and he really becomes more serious about getting rid of the anger. And the town is introducing ordinances against feeding deer. I mean, like, they're like, anything they can do to fuck with this guy. Ordinances against putting signs on your prop- on your home. Mm. So he just realizes it's coming more and more and more that he's just got to change. And the only way he can think to change is by stopping listening. He just can't know what's going on in the media anymore. And, you know, he's still 
uh, like uh, he still has properties and stuff. You know, he's a, he's a he's a good businessman. He's got tenants and things like that. And at one point, he talks about one of the tenants. He's saying this to the the interviewer Sam. He's saying one of my tenants mentioned that president that died, and uh, President Ford was from Grand Rapids, Michigan. And Sam, the interviewer, assumes that he's speaking about President Ford, and he goes, "Oh, well, President Ford is presidential library is in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I'm going to go there pretty soon." And Doc says, no, not that president, the other president. So he, Sam puts it together. He's talking about Reagan. Mm-hmm. So he won't even say the name Reagan because he's got to keep a lid on this fury. So it's like I just – he has to erase these things that are undeniable truths about life from his mind and from his awareness of the continuing horror that's happening that he just can't abide. He can't abide the hypocrisy. He can't abide the lies. So he has to shut it the fuck off. And he says, my, you know, my tenant said this about, and I, I have a lot of problems with this tenant. Because <laughs> the guy mentioned President Ford dying. Yeah. So he's, he's doing this interview uh, late 2007. And he says to Sam, the interviewer, he says, I just assume that, you know, Cheney got elected president. Oh, he doesn't even he know. He doesn't know. That he doesn't know. There's something during the interview, because they're at a diner, there's something during the interview that comes on about Scooter Libby's trial. He puts his, puts his fingers in his ears over the radio. Puts his fingers in his ears. Can't do it. And he says, he says this to Sam. He says, like, I, don't know, I just assume Cheney's president now. And Sam's like, well, you don't want to know, so I'm not going to tell you. And he goes, good. I mean, that's knowing yourself, man. That's, that's somebody I know. I know myself, and I just have to tune out. Right. Turn off. Yeah, I just got to stop. I just got to stop this. Uh Sam, yeah. Sam, uh, the interviewer is, it, you know, he he posits in this article that this is an age where, you know, the initial shock of punk is long worn off, and you know, even the resurgence twenty years later with Nirvana and Green Day, etc. It's so passe and yeah. and just and there's all these these old characters from those early days like Ian MacKay from Minor Threat and Henry Rollins from Black Flag that are still in the media trying to seem so punk. And meanwhile, there's this guy who's in Michigan being punk. who's so fucking punk that he has to f- leave society and just feed deer on the back porch and not know what the fuck is going on. That's super fucking punk. Like, I mean, this dude is fucking for real, man. And he's still, uh, wow. And this is the thing, that you gotta see, he's still a guy, he's still a man with kids, right. and, you know... You know when he like uh, when he had the shit with the he still got a band in two thousand four two thousand three with the signs out you're alone you got the fucking deer and the deer are so I mean like I said the like the saga of the raccoons he's so in he has names for these guys he's got a he's got a tree in his house he calls Frank he's got he's he, he goes outside he feeds the deer in the middle of the interview and he's like he's like I call this one <laughs> one that comes close I call this one. One that comes smashing into the house, right? So he's got names for all. He knows them all, right? But in the middle of this, too, you know, like when he's when he's um, he's diving into some kind of spirituality that he never really reveals. Uh, he calls it mysticism. Okay. And he's he's he feels like uh, you know, like when you're alone and you know something so inherently that when somebody else asks you about it, you're like, well. You you talk to them like they already know it because you know it so much, right? You That's take kind it. of what he's like in this interview about his whatever you could call it spirituality. But at one point he says to his kids, he's got he's got a he's got a son and a daughter, and you know they'd be like my age now, like thirty four. So they're like you know early twenties around this point. Um, in two thousand 
seven when he gives up on stuff and he feels like he's got to go into himself and like become some kind of a monk and he's like tells his kids he's like i might need to just go away for a couple of years and really come to peace and he's like both of my kids said no (laughs) and they just piled it on and wouldn't shut the fuck up about no 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 and like he smiles and he says and it was really cool so he i mean he stayed he stayed in with his kids you know yeah which is like the one thing you're happy for for this guy is that he yeah. at least didn't lose his kids. It's not very punk, but it is nice. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, I mean, these poor kids having to deal with this lunatic. I can't imagine. I mean, what's what are they like? I mean, yeah, they, they uh, work at a bank. <laughs> you know, seemingly, seemingly normal kids, you know. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, that is the story of. Doc Dart, and you can't really get much beyond that because... He's retreated from society. Right. So nobody knows his whereabouts, current location, situation. I mean, I think, his, I think, I think he's... I mean, that's the, that's the fucking thing about this guy. Is this guy always stayed in this town. He never left Lansing? No. So he was... Even while he was in a band, he was always just performing locally? No, no. I mean, I'm sure, like, the band toured and, you okay, know, all that okay. stuff and everything. But, I mean, that was home. Home was home. And, you know, part of of his thing is like, you know, I'm a fucking I'm I'm still Doc Dart. I'm still named after grandpa. You know, I just fucking speak up that. What a what an arc. I know. I know. I mean, this this thing where you just got to disappear and but you're you, you know, you reality's too much. Right. Reality's too much. I just got to there's that 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 is, but the, the, you know, in the. For as much as he shat on Buddhists, he led a very Buddha-like exactly. lifestyle. Exactly. I come from this life of privilege. I learned that it is not everything I was told it was, and I shun it, and I go out on my own to figure things out. Right. And then I'm feeding deer, which I think was like straight out of Buddha too, like feeding animals and bonding with the animals. Right. And then like, you know, coming to a piece of shunning the, the, the material world. Shunning I, the material world. Let me just tell you this one little bit. So Sam, the interviewer, at one point they sit down in his home, and Sam is recording with an iPod. And he says, when I explained to Doc that this could hold hundreds of hours of interview, uh-huh. he's completely baffled. He doesn't know a fucking thing about this. Yeah. Because, I mean, it was, first it started as a slow retreat, and then it become, you know, it became an abrupt close of the door. And then, you know, because if you learn one thing... You're gonna learn something else. You're gonna else. learn something else, and then you're gonna. Why did that happen? And you just gotta. Yeah. He know? he knows the pattern of you ask too many questions, you're not gonna like. Eventually, you're gonna find an answer you don't like. Right. So stop asking questions. Right. Wow. Man. And that is our profile in eccentricity. Fucking punk rock Buddha Doc Dart. Yeah. What a maniac. Yeah, and I mean, it was just. I mean, the, the. I mean, the guy fucking had a rape crisis center built. You know, yeah. he saw a real fucking problem. And did, did yeah. something about it. Yeah, the guy with the, the jackass with the broken glass and the razor blades, he, the... he improved your town. Mm-hmm. And nobody else would have done it, you know? It's like it had to take this guy. He had to bribe them with winning an election to get it done. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that probably incensed him even more. Right. The, I... the only way I could get this common sense thing to happen was by bribing them with my 500 votes. Yeah. Appealing to their baser instincts you yeah. know, of, of narcissism. I want to know, who are these 500 people? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I mean, that's the thing, too, is that, I mean, if it is, you imagine 
you're fifth in the nation for rape. Fifth. Your city is number five for most rapes in America. I mean, there's going to be enough people on the street that are like, this is a fucking epidemic. This is a nightmare. And nobody's talking about doing anything about it except for this fucking guy with a baseball card store. What the hell is that about? Did you know he used to cut himself? Huh? (laughs) He used to get beaten by the cops on... What? He used to call the cops on himself. Yes! But the thing is, too, is that you have to understand, I mean, like, part of this thing is there is the real rage. The real rage and... You know, part of that thing when you're in that place, like, and this is the way I felt during the Bush years, is there's the rage over the knowledge of what's going on, and then there's the rage of nobody else cares. Yeah, that's that's the deeper rage. And that is the deeper thing where you the, go- Why is nobody else pissed about this? Yeah, and you're going around with your head in your hands, and it's, it's not a fun party vibe. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's not a good time. No. Uh, and most people can, you know, do their best to separate that. And he just couldn't. It's like, what what, what are we doing? We're fucking playing bocce ball and these fucking people are getting slaughtered? Yeah. For no reason? For money? For profit? Like, and, you know, um, there is, there's, there's real integrity to that. And at the same time, this guy still enjoys, I mean, immense white and wealth privilege, you know? But did he use it for good? And like the part of the thing too is that you know, when two thousand six comes around, he's uh, and he's given up. There's still signs on the house, and there and paint and eggs. I mean, it it looks like uh. a fucking nightmare. And then when they come with the ordinances to shut him down and shit, out of nowhere, here comes somebody from the ACLU. Here comes all these all these people being like, "We'll support you. We'll we'll yeah." Because now it's cool to hate Bush. Yeah. And where it, were you 10 years ago? That's exactly yeah. what he said to yeah. them. He's like, where the fuck were you when I was, like, getting my pinky broken? It's like, I got my kids visiting here. Yeah. I'm fucking, yeah, I'm, I'm getting attacked by the cops. I'm getting attacked by people. I'm getting death threats on the vo- on the on my voicemail all the time. Where the fuck were you? Now you want me to say this shit? Yeah. And uh, and so, yeah, he. I mean, that was also his thing, too, is that he hated the cowardice of the left, justifiably. Oh, of course. You know, because yeah. now. When it's convenient. Yeah, now when it's convenient. When I said the thing that was not at all remotely possibly popular, you guys were nowhere. Yeah. And now, oh, the war in Iraq isn't going so well. Yeah. And you guys are like, you should be able to say that Bush sucks. Fuck you. <laughs> Fuck you. Yeah. You know? I was saying it when it- He was. Yeah. You know? And uh, and I couldn't. Could I ever do that? No. Oh, the balls. The balls. I mean, he's a fucking weirdo. Yeah. Eccentric? Did we profile him? I think we did. Well, then, yeah. Yeah. Quite eccentric. Uh, I, I, I really, I really buying into this punk rock Buddha thing about him. I love it. Like <laughs> even down like the inherent discontent of being that he has. Yeah. No matter what, he will not be happy. ACLU shows up. Not soon enough. Yeah. No right. matter what happens, he's going to be pissed about it. And I There's love it. There's a thing where he's, I love it. he said, <laughs> there was, there was a very famous clan rally in Lansing one time. Oh yeah, I know. And uh, <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. Well, that's the thing too is that you. I mean, the Klan marched in Long Island when I like in the '90s when I lived there. Mm-hmm. And you're like, what the Klan? You know, you you forget. And like, you know, militia country, Michigan, mm-hmm. number one militia state, I think, in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so the Klan are, are are coming, and of course, there's you know the huge counter protest. And they said somebody said Doc Dart was at the protest, and he started with heckling the Klan. And then he moved on to the police, 
And then he moved on to the other hecklers. <laughs> I love it. Like, just a pain in the ass. Yes. And like, like he's like, I gotta tell you, this one old guy outside my place with the, you know the signs are up. He's like, I was watching from my window. This old guy. He's like, I've never seen a guy so mad in my life. <laughs> and it was so funny to me. <laughs> reading my words and just visibly huffing and pu- and just freaking out. This is a neighborhood. And he's up there. He's upstairs looking at him laughing. And But he's he's going, this is the old doc. He's the- looking at the old man seeing him. No, 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 no. He's saying the part of me that's enjoying this is the old doc I need to get rid of. Mm. And part of this, by the way, uh, getting rid of the old doc was renaming himself 26. Huh? Yeah. He renames himself 26. Why 26? It came to him in a dream one time. Oh, yeah? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. By the one who comes spoke the number 26. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's part of the weird spirituality stuff that he doesn't really get into. Yeah. Uh, the mysticism, as he calls it. But yeah, part of it was he renamed. He goes goes by twenty six, and uh, yeah, it's um, I I just I can't think of I don't think anybody and you know punk rock is a genre for weirdos. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's been anybody as legitimately focused out there. Right. I mean, it's not like you know, like he's he knows exactly what it is. That's wrong. Yeah, it's not. You know what I mean. It's not just generic ambivalence and rage out out at all directions. It's focused at certain things. Right. Right. It's not just the general angst of punk. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. 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 It's um. It's uh the rage towards this this enduring lie mm-hmm. that the whole thing is 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 fake, so that you just have to give up on it. It took him a while to figure that out. And that's part of the thing he says is that um, he's like, I, in a way, I would keep doing these what he calls social experiments and I would just keep doing them because I wouldn't learn my lesson. Yeah. So I would keep needling and fucking fucking with people and just going and going and doing it and doing it and just making everybody mad that he really possibly could on all sides. Mm-hmm. Didn't matter if you were a punk, cop, politician, family, raccoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think they were spared the wrath. Oh, okay. The raccoons. Not by me, man. Fuck those guys. Yeah, they gotta go. Uh, <laughs> no, they're, I don't give a shit about they're them. They're cute sometimes, but yeah, they are yeah. menaces. Right, and they will steal from you. Um, what, a, a, what an eccentric profile. Right! Did you enjoy that, Aaron? I did. I You always, you show me the way. I show you culture because you have none. I have none. I am a poor, pretty white trash boy from L.A., and you bring to me knowledge of from course. the other side. Yes, I had to slop about in the piss and shit to bring you culture. Mm-hmm. You still smell, but <laughs> you bring forth knowledge from the dark side, and it, it makes me appreciate it. Um, I think uh, we're about cooked here. I think so. I am very thankful to... Uh, Sam McFeeders for writing the article that I drew extensively from. Yeah, uh, we'll I'm thankful to Leah K. Janian for putting everything in a uh, timeline for me. That really helped me get through. Yeah, you're uh, not so good with concepts no, and organization. I, yeah, so thank I you, go Leah. And, for yeah, doing that. exactly, exactly. And I'm very thankful uh, to Matt Brousseau for all of his help in this podcast, which we don't deserve. We do not deserve. We don't a, deserve it. A, we don't deserve nice things because we're not good people. No, no. Uh, thank you, Matt. Thank you, John. Again. Thank you, Aaron. And thank you, Doc Dart. 
Thank you, Dr. Art, for being the realist in the game. Yeah, straight up. Straight up. Gaff, don't give a fuck. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, I'm John Fahey. I'm Aaron Pita. And we will see you next time. Bye.